The Game Podcast is probably sponsored by StarCityGames.com, where Rivals of Vixalon pre-orders are now live. Hey everyone, welcome to the 58th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is the beekeeper, Brian Gottlieb. What the hell is the beekeeper? Well, as with all things I say, there's multiple layers to this. As the beekeeper, I will be kind of leading our listeners through the buzzing and all the noise and all the dangerous stinging thoughts that are surrounding Rivals of Ixalan right now and getting them to the honey, to the sweetness of Rivals of Ixalan. But also beyond that, I'm all business this week because we have lots of stuff to talk about. It feels like we haven't been together in forever. There's been an entire new set spoiled. I just want to talk about cards. I'm pumped. I've been waiting really like breathlessly for this podcast. I'm really excited to see what you think about the set and to just kind of, you know, bounce ideas off of you. So I left for two weeks. I come back in your BBD. I don't get it. I, I don't know what that means. I'm sorry. You're you're just like punning it up over there, and I'm not sure not sure how I feel about it. <laughs> I'm not a big pun guy, but I really wanted to like emphasize how stoked I am to have this podcast, and that's why I, I had to play the role of beekeeper this week. Look, not all of these are going to be hits, bro. If I come up with a different name every week, some of them are going to be misses. It's okay if you're not into the beekeeper. Someone out there is really enjoying this uh, this punnery, so it, it's probably BBD. But anyway, as long as someone gets it, yeah. Uh, there was like the holidays and stuff, and then I was out of town for a little bit, so we skipped last week, and now just an entire set preview season ended somehow within like three days. So we did not get any time to, we didn't get like the slow trickle of card reveals, and it's like, oh, like, you know, like, let's spend a day talking about this one card. Maybe for like the next two weeks or whatever, we're just going to talk about Rick's and uh, specifically for standard, I think, maybe a little bit of modern uh, if we think of anything, but today top 10 lists, because I don't know. I I feel like that's a good place to start. You know, just like these are our initial impressions upon seeing the entire set drop all at once. And then we get to be horribly, horribly wrong and everyone gets to laugh at us. Yeah. I, I think that's fun. And it just shows where our focus lies. Right. And I think that's the really important step in week one. Like Look, we're not going to have fully formed decks at this stage. If we claim we do, we're probably selling you a bill of goods. Like, there hasn't been enough time. I don't have any games in, but I'm letting you know what's kind of exciting me right now, what I think has potential, what demands a time investment in my eyes. Another caveat is that there's a BNR announcement on the 15th. We're recording this on the 9th, and this will get published on the 12th, I think. So, like, maybe the Monday after. This podcast goes up, we might see something banned from the energy decks, which I think is at this point a pretty high likelihood. Yeah, I you know, I kind of didn't think it would happen, but something about reading Melissa's article this past week, I mean yes. when she's talking about energy in the same context as like eight ban affinity, uh there's a lot of alarms going off there. And at this point, I think I would be surprised not to see a ban. My evaluations for this week I did I don't know. I kind of went half and half, like half believing there would be a ban, half believing there wouldn't be. So I think my numbers would shift pretty dramatically in the event of a ban. There's a lot of cards that just don't like match up very well against really Whirler Virtuoso was the card I kept running up against over and over. And it's like, oh, this card is otherwise good if not for Whirler Virtuoso. Yeah, There's a lot fewer Whirler Virtuosos next week. My analysis will change dramatically. 
Right. So I don't know. I mean, I guess we can talk about things in the context of maybe there's teamer, maybe there's not teamer. Does one thing change drastically one way or the other? And just kind of talk about that as it comes up. Yeah. And I think that's, again, the good part of not really trying to go with decks this week. It's just like in a vacuum, these cards are powerful. These are the cards that have potential both in a teamer world and a non-teamer world. So, yep. Okay. So we're going to go from number 10 to number one which is the Brian Gottlieb approved method of doing this. You mean the everyone but Jerry T method of doing this. <laughs> I just like skipping to the end, man. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. Uh, you'll never sell me on that method, but it's okay. I seem to have convinced you, so we don't have to worry about that. We're doing it the right way now. It makes sense. Yes, it I understand that you should start with the weakest one and then end on the strongest one because no one really cares what your ninth card is or whatever. Yeah, although I'll, I'll be honest, my 10th card could be just as good as my first card in this context. I had a really hard time kind of, I knew what I wanted on my list for the no, most part, but I had a really hard time placing things on my list. My first card is the first card, period. Okay. I don't know if I feel that End strongly, but maybe we'll see. We'll see. We ha- By the way, this is a really like new approach for me going into spoiler season. I very much isolated myself. I wanted kind of my ideas to stand on my own and not get wrapped up into what the community was talking about too much. So I've avoided a lot of the writing around this set so far. So I could be coming out of way left field. Just a, just a fair warning right now. My take on this set might be way different than everyone else's. So that's exciting. Also, I want to note that uh, we have not shared our top 10 list with each other. Yes. So uh, who wants to start, you or me? Fire at me. I want to hear what you got. Okay, so number 10 is a gasser. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. You might not even know what this card does. <laughs> Probably not. There's a good chance. This card name is Curious Obsession. No idea. Tell me about it. Oh, man. Oh, I got you. Okay, so you, Enchantment Aura, Enchant Creature. Enchant Creature gets plus one, plus one, and has whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. At the beginning oh, of your end step, if you didn't attack with a creature this turn, sacrifice this. Okay, I, I do know this card, and I, I did take a mental note of it. It's not on my top 10. So you fire first. Tell us why you're excited about this card. I want this card to be good so badly. Very similar cards have been good in the past. Yes. I mean, Keen Sense is a Boggles card in Modern. Curiosity has definitely killed some people on things like Title Warrior. You know, mm-hmm. and we have Siren Storm Tamer. Uh, I think there's just like an endless supply of Welkin turns. I have not done like the, I haven't done my due diligence as far as searching for like unblockable creatures or whatever, but uh, I am down with this thing with like Lookouts Dispersal, Siren Storm Tamer, the like. I, I do think that like if a fish like blue black pirate deck exists, it might be because of this card. So there's, there's a one mana unblockable Merfolk, is there not? Okay, yeah, that that might go in the deck. Yeah. I think one of the things people forget is that the genesis of one of the best standard decks of all time, Delver, was very much based around the card Curiosity in its early forms. It was kind of different back then, and it focused more on illusions, I think, if I remember correctly. The, the illusion deck did not have Curiosity, but there was an invisible stalker deck that did. Yeah, so I, I'm talking like this was before even illusions kind of popping up at Star, like the Star City Opens, this was in the Moto metagame. And it was very much yep. a Curiosity-based mono blue deck that kind of, I think it was the foundations that eventually led to Illusions and then eventually led to Delver. Yes. But it's a card with a constructed pedigree that usually lacks the plus one, plus one side of things. And the whole drawback 
Like if you're using this card to its fullest, you don't care about the drawback. You very much want to be attacking every turn. You've built your deck in a way to let you attack every turn. That drawback's more apt to come into play in limited than constructed where like your entire deck is based around really maximizing a card like Curious Obsession. I agree, although there are definitely some turns where it's like you have a curious creature, you have to sit back one turn to like develop another creature and then next turn you like play a removal spell or play a bounce spell and like try and get the engine online again. And so having this fall off is pretty much a feel bad, but the unblockable merfolk, I'm in. Let's do it. Yeah, in theory, it's paid for itself at that point, right? Like when you when you lose this card, you've hopefully already gotten your draw out of it. Like you're not really going to ever play it if you don't benefit from it immediately. So yeah, I like this as an inclusion on your list. It's not one that I put on, but it's probably floating around the power level of a lot of other things that I do have here. So good call on this one. Like if you play a 2-2 and they play a 2-2 and you Curious Obsession and hit them, what are they going to do? They're in a tough spot right, like the- right off the gun smoke. Like the plus one plus one is actually a pretty big deal for the early game. And uh, I'm going to be very honest. We're like, I don't know if this is going to be in a tier one constructed deck. I'm guessing that it is more likely that it is not than it is, but it is a very, very powerful card. And we haven't seen a curiosity in a while. So I thought it was worth taking note of. I agree. Good, good call on this one. I kind of am upset with myself for missing this one because this is the type of effect. I, I think like, if you're going to change the metagame dramatically, you have to look for cards like this, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like things that just totally change the axis of the game. Yeah, a card that does something different than everything else. And this card right. does exactly that. And it is proven to be a constructed card in the past. And like, while that doesn't always necessarily translate, I think it could. Yeah, and I think the versions that have proven constructed playable are worse. I think it's fair to say this might be the best curiosity ever printed. So I agree with you. All right, you're up. Okay, so from a really obscure card to kind of the card that a lot of people are talking about, rounding out my top 10 is Huatli Radiant Champion. A lot of people are talking about Huatli? I, I believe so. Is that not a card that has caught people's attention at this point? Oh, like I liked Huatli and I just assumed that everyone else was going to hate it. Oh, no. I, I mean, again, I've been skipping out on the literature. Basically, my exposure to kind of conversation is based on Twitter and the game podcast discord at this point. Okay. And in those two arenas, it seems like people are excited about Huatli. So I kind of assume that translated to everyone, but if not, then so be it. Cause this is a unique card and it's difficult to evaluate, but I, I see a lot of play patterns that really leave me pretty high on Huatli. And the fact that there's not a dramatic amount of ways to directly deal with the planeswalker. Like this is not a hero's downfall format. Yeah. We have Raskus Contempt, obviously. Let me let me do our job and like actually read this card. So sure. uh Huatli, Radiant Champion, two G dub, legendary planeswalker, uh starts with three loyalty, plus one, put a loyalty counter on Huatli for each creature you control. Minus one, target creature gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of creatures you control. And minus eight, you get an emblem with whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. Yeah, so I think this does a really nice job of both increasing pressure in kind of situations where you're being the aggressor and forcing your opponent into really difficult spots. And kind of against, if your deck is built around maximizing this card, it's able to do its job efficiently across multiple matchups like it's it's good in the control matchup because it creates this kind of persistent threat where if you get your emblem now the control matchup is almost laughable at that point like you're playing from a very powerful position as the green white based creature deck when you're just drawing card after card yep and you know the quick clock is also 
a, a really essential part of the puzzle too. There are a lot of lifelink creatures that are kind of starting to get into the range of possibly playable. I, I just think there's a lot of ways to maximize both the plus one and the minus one. It's really easy to kind of hit that minus eight threshold if your deck is built around it right off the bat, because you're getting both the plus one and the additional loyalty counters on top of it. Like my math didn't really account for that at first. I was just kind of plus oneing and then getting the number of creatures I had in play and missing the actual plus one itself. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Like if you had three creatures, you would just add three counters, add but you three. get three plus the one. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's pretty plausible to get to a point where on turn four, your first activation of Watley is setting you up for an emblem on the next turn. Yep, exactly. Um, and then the game's really easy to win from that point against a lot of matchups. Now, in the context of something like Teamer, I have my doubts about this card. And like I said, if things change as far as a ban in the next week, I think this card would move up my scale a little bit. Uh, but this is a really unique take on Planeswalkers. And I think the power level's there. This is going to see some constructed play. And it's unique in that it has to be built around. Like, it's just not a value card that's going in every green-white deck the way that Planeswalkers often are. Your entire strategy has to be based around maximizing this card. But when you do so, you're going to get paid in spades. Right. And it's just both abilities are good in a go-wide creature deck. So it, it gets to ask you to do the exact same thing, which is really nice. I agree with you. I have a feeling. Is, is this card that's going to show up later on? Do you want to give us a spoiler on your side? Are you also pretty high on Huatli? It is my number eight. Okay. I guess we should probably do shout outs when we, when we cross over like that. That's probably an interesting point of comparison where we have it on our yeah. list as opposed to our, our co-host. Yeah. So you basically said everything that I wanted to say about this card. It, just, okay. the, just the fact that like both abilities work very well together is the thing that makes me interested in just building around this thing. And I wonder if if people aren't excited about this card. I think that we have very much defaulted to a kind of static method of Planeswalker evaluation, where the first thing we look at is, does it protect itself? And is that a very important piece of the puzzle? Yes. Historically, the best Planeswalkers are the ones that are able to protect themselves. But this is kind of playing a whole different game as far as planeswalkers go and and using loyalty as its shield to protect itself and you know just really banking on its game breaking ultimate so I, I think people are a little off on their evaluation of this card if they're not excited about it this will be a fun one to build around in the coming the coming years having three creatures is not a big ask especially if you're playing like elvish visionary type stuff or like the random explore creatures any sort of token maker and yeah like you said this uses its own loyalty to protect itself like Gaining four loyalty a turn on this thing is not that difficult, and that is your means of protection. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, too, where I think kind of the way I've analyzed this card is just like, oh, you hit the emblem on the head, and that's the way you play the game forward. But there's going to be a lot of situations where you're just ultimating Huatli and then sitting with Huatli in play. Now you're chaining through your entire deck, so your minuses become tremendous, and you're just giving your creatures, you know, plus nine, plus nine, or something preposterous like that, and you have the emblem, the game just snowballs out of control so quickly at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the only thing that you run the risk of at that point is losing to, like, them sweeping your board repeatedly and beating you with, like, Terminal Gear Hulk, maybe Scarab God gets you, some sort of flyer or whatever. Like, you have to be able to answer whatever threat that they're putting out, of course, but going along, you're going to smash everyone. For sure. Cool. Uh, so that was your number 10. So we will go to my number nine, I cheated a little bit on some of these because it's a tribal set and some of it kind of overlaps. You know what I mean? Uh, did you mush them together? Yeah. Is that allowed? I guess I didn't mush, but uh, that's a fine approach. You, you cheated a little bit and got yourself some extra slots, but that's fine. I, I'll allow it. 
Okay, so the the real answer here, and maybe this is a little too low, is Radiant Destiny, but the card that I actually want to talk about is Champion of Dusk. Okay, talk away. So Champion of Dusk is 3BB, Creature Vampire Knight. When Champion of Dusk enters the battlefield, you draw X cards and lose X life, where X is the number of vampires you control, and it's a 4-4. So 5-mana 4-4, very least, unless they kill it with a trigger on the stack, you ETB, draw a card, lose a life. And if you've played some Queen's Commissions or Legion Conquistadors or whatever, like you're you're just going to refill. And with vampires being this weirdo gain life, pay life tribe, like this is one of the best rewards I've seen for paying life that you might have incidentally gained off of random lifelink creatures. And obviously Radiant Destiny is just dope. It's just going to be good. I agree on Radiant Destiny. I think it's going to be very good. I'm a little lower on Champion of Dusk just because... I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the way vampires will be built if they actually need to kind of reload in that fashion. I'm starting to come around to the idea that they do. Um, I don't think vampires is an aggro deck anymore. Kind of the mono white vampires list that did very well at the last pro tour. I don't think vampires look anything like that anymore. And there are quite a few vampires coming up on my list as, as we move throughout. Okay. Okay. So I, I won't spoil them because I, I don't have Champion of Dusk in my top 10. I would place it just outside my top 10 because I'm not sure whether or not it's actually going to be included, whether it's going to be included in large numbers, how essential it is to have that kind of that, that re- reset trigger, that refill trigger. Yeah. I kind of see Vampires as now a tribe that each card generates so much value on its own. You kind of don't need this hammer. It's more about just maximizing your ability to generate value on the lower end of the curve rather than going all the way up to five. Um, But playtesting could prove me totally wrong on this. Um, I think this is a fine inclusion. And I'm with you all the way on the uh, Glorious Anthem effect. It's going to be very important, specifically for vampires going forward. And, you know, maybe in the future for some other tribe, but this is a vampires card right now. So Champion of Dusk to me goes in one of two decks. The first is like a somewhat low to the ground, very go wide deck. And you're just like, yeah, whatever. Like I'll I'll refuel, draw six cards and it doesn't really cost me anything. And then that you're going to be able to leverage that into beating your opponent one way or another, right? The other one that I was thinking of is like, maybe there's like just a black red or black white mid-range deck that just uses this as like a draw two or a draw three. Maybe that's not good enough. We're going to get to that for sure as we move through my list, because I agree with you. I think there might be a black-white deck specifically that looks just like that. And this could be a nice piece of that. Yeah, because like Gifted Aetherborn just fuels this card. Mm -hmm. Very true. It it is interesting. I mean, I I would prefer if it had some sort of rider on it, like 4-4 Ground Pounder is not impressing anyone. Uh, So maybe the 4-4 body for 5 mana is like not actually worth the investment. Maybe maybe you just play it in very small numbers or not at all. I'm not sure. But it does strike me as a card that's like, oh, this is like a powerful payoff that kind of like the curiosity. It's like we haven't seen a lot of stuff like this, so I want to try it. And the fail state isn't the worst, right? Like five mana, four, four draw card. That's not really constructed level, but you don't feel awful about it. You're not beating your head against the wall when you have to get that kind of payoff. So, yeah, I, I like this card a lot. I, you're right that it's a different kind of effect. Again, the shape of the format gives me a little pause. Four is a very vulnerable back end. You know, mono red being as good as it has been up to this point means you really have to be leaning on lifelink in the early turns to fuel Champion of Dusk or it's going to become a huge liability in those matchups. But post-boards are going to bring in like Chandra's and Glorybringers. They're going to get bigger. They're going to board out their little Bowmat couriers that just get brickwalled by your Queen's commissions or whatever, you know? So like it is a mid-range battle post-board and they're not trying to burn you out necessarily, so... 
Yeah, and that's a really nice point about this card is I think that kind of regardless what Vampires ends up looking like, this is an excellent sideboard option in all versions of it that have access to black. There's going to be a lot of matchups where this is just a complete trump. Any kind of mid-range mirror, you're going to want to lean on Champion of Dust very hard. Assuming there's not already like a max number of copies in the main deck where it's just like actually the best card. It certainly has a home in the sideboard if that's not the case. Yeah, and there's not a lot of competition in the five mana slot, right? Yes, the competition is lower on the curve, for sure. Okay, like four, you have options. Three and two, you have a ton of options. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If, you, if you're looking for a five drop, there you go. So that was my nine. Okay, my nine is Rekindling Phoenix. Phoenixes have historically been disappointing throughout the history of Constructed Magic. I'll go ahead and read this card. Rekindling Phoenix is uh, two colors, two red. It's a 4-3 flyer. When Rekindling Phoenix dies, create a 0-1 red elemental creature token with at the beginning of your upkeep. Sacrifice this creature and return target card named Rekindling Phoenix from your graveyard to the battlefield. It gains haste until end of turn. I think that this is a unique take on the Phoenix effect. It's fast. It's free. You get your Phoenix back very quickly. The reason why this card has kind of slid down my rankings as I've evaluated it a little bit more is Whirler Virtuoso. It does not line up well against Whirler Virtuoso. It's kind of just like going to Abyss, a 1-1 every turn, which is not what you want out of your four drop. But I was thinking of this card in the context, you know, there's a lot of matchups where Mono Red now boards in Glorybringers. And it's not really for the exert ability of Glorybringer. It's just because the 4-4 flying body is exactly what you want in the matchup. Rekindling Phoenix is going to do that job, but better in a lot of spots. I'm not saying it's better than Glorybringer. Glorybringer is kind of a world-class card. Rekindling Phoenix is a little bit more speculative, but I do see this card having a home in standard at the the very least as a good mono-red sideboard option, but I think it's better than that. I think this card could see some widespread play, and you just think of the play patterns. You know, it's kind of a default two for one on its face. There's no way to really pick off the O one at zero cost. Like it's and it's not a widely played effect where it's just easy to deal with an O one on board. If you're killing a rekindling phoenix, it's probably costing you two spells in most spots, and that's okay. And sometimes it's just dominant. It'll just take over the game. I like the card a lot. I think it's going to see some adoption at the very least in mono red sideboards. Rekindling phoenix is very good. It did not make my top 10. I think that's probably a mistake. Time will tell. Um, Like I said, I think the one clear-cut case is a a mono-red sideboard card. I think it's absolutely great in that role. You could see bringing it in against decks with a lot of sweepers, any kind of control deck that doesn't rely on exile effects, like uh, that doesn't have four of Raska's Contempt. But even there, at least you're trading that mana parity, so it's not the worst outcome in the entire world. Yeah, plus Red red has like Chandra and Hazaret that all need to be Contempted, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that also, there's a lot of fours there, which is a problem in and of itself. Sort of. You're you're taxing them, for sure. I mean, the Phoenix is certainly better in mono-red mirrors than Chandra is. Yes. Like, post-board against Control, like, is is Phoenix worse than Glorybringer? I don't think so. Like things like it's better. Yes. I mean, things like Sensor exist, and there are games where you're stuck on four, and it's like, I would much rather just have a Phoenix than a Glorybringer and not have to draw land five, you know? So... Drawing or having all fours is not the worst thing, actually. If if like the four drop that you have is would be replacing a five. Yep, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so you know that's that's about it for me on Rekindling Phoenix. It's a card that I started a little higher on. I've moved down a little bit, but again, could change with the shape of the format. I, I think Whirly Virtuoso is a problematic matchup, but other than that, this seems like a card that will really do well in this format. Yeah, the the haste I think is the thing that I missed the first time. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a big piece of the puzzle. I mean, like I said, this is a fast version of the Phoenix. Yeah, and it um, just it costs you zero mana. Like mm-hmm. I am, I am actually very surprised at how generous this card is. Mm-hmm. It's the best Phoenix ever made, and you know there there's been other good ones in the past. Yeah, like Ashcloud Phoenix was a four one. Yeah. You know, like four th- like this thing is just super generous. And it's a mythic, so you know, gotta be good. Yeah, no bad mythics. Well, I'm gonna pause right here. Have you pre-ordered anything yet? No, I, I don't pre-order just because I find that when I do, those cards just kind of sit around a lot of the times. Like I don't end up playing that archetype. So yeah. I'd rather just when I go to the tournament, I buy whatever cards I need. And, you know, over time, I've realized that's the way that saves me the most money. And do I miss on some things and have to pay way more down the road? Sure, that absolutely happens. But on the whole, just buying things as I use them is the most cost efficient way for me to go about stuff. That's fair. Although I probably should have bought Smuggler's Copters when they were a dollar. Yeah. Probably should have. Well, I wasn't like reading the preview cards at that point. So now I try and do that and try and spike, try and get rich. Uh, so Did far, you, I'm. What, so, what's your specs for this set? Do you have any financial tips? So far, I'm not rich, but I don't know. This set is weird because everything's cheap. Everything is cheap. All the mythics are like 10 bucks. If you just pick the right one and that ends up being like the $30 card or whatever, good on you. But mm-hmm. there are a lot of different options for what it could be. Yeah, it could be this. I it could be the happen. Phoenix. It could be the Phoenix, which is why I brought it up because I checked the price and it was ten on Star City. So, yep. anyway, uh, so that was your nine, correct? Correct. All right, my eight was Swatley. So back to you. I am now up to Tetsimok, Primal Death. Oh, really? This could be a hard miss, and I'll, I'll put that up front right now. Read it. Tetsimok, Primal Death is a legendary Elder Dinosaur. Two black, four colorless, six, six death touch. Black, reveal Tetsamok Primal Death from your hand. Put a prey counter on target creature. Activate this ability only during your turn. When Tetsamok enters the battlefield, destroy each creature your opponents control with a prey counter on it. So I don't know where this goes. There does not exist a deck for this card right now. Black, red, mid range. Yeah, I mean, that's what the deck will look like. It's some kind of black, red, black, white, loaded with removal type deck. And this is your top end finisher. And it's just a way to like build in little points of mana efficiency throughout all of your turns. Because you're not like a pure control deck where you have to hold up mana going into your opponent's turn. You're able to kind of put yourself in a position where you're tapped low every turn. Tap out control plays very well in in black, red, black, white style decks. Um, I don't see this being an inclusion in like a blue black style deck. It's not really what you're trying to do there, but it's possible. Uh, a one side plague wind attached to a six, six is going to be very good in a lot of spots. And also it just influences the way your opponents play the game. It has that kind of subtle effect on boards where like, do they just dump their entire hand when they know your next turn is going to be spent, you know, marking all their creatures. And then the turn after that, you're going to wipe their board. And a lot of spots, the answer is going to be yes. Cause that's how you pressure a life total. But you're able to kind of force your opponent into some difficult spots and maximize your mana throughout all of your turns. I think this card will see some scattered play if the mid-range, very heavy removal-based archetypes are any good. I could see a lot of play. It lines up poorly in a format where there's a lot of control. I don't know that it lines up against the teamer decks particularly well. So again, we're probably looking at just raw power and a format that does not yet exist. But I think the power level is there with Tetsamok uh, to see at least some scattered play as a control finisher. So I have some thoughts on this card. Uh, the first one that is kind of simple is that you can reanimate it. Yeah, like yep. 
which one you put the prey counter on doesn't care which Tetsumok actually kills them. So if there's like uh, some Liliana Death's Majesty action, uh, the Scarab God is obviously the the real one. It's it's like kind of interesting, you know. Normally these are like cast from your hand or whatever. The second thing is. Just any time, like you're thinking about early game, you're just like, all right, pray counter that, pray counter that, turn six, slam this thing, kill your stuff. Interesting play pattern that emerges that on turn five is when they play their best creature and they, they try and hold it until then, right? Because like when you roll into turn six, you can't like pray and cast it. Right. But then past that, like for seven mana, this is ETB kill a creature. For eight mana, this is ETB kill two creatures, right? Like this is just flame tongue Kavu anytime past the early turns and i think that's where this card actually just becomes absurd scales incredibly well into the late game yeah it's doing that job of both getting you to those kind of like bridge turns the turns where you absolutely have to have the answer to survive and then just being insane off the top of your deck in any kind of stalemate situation yeah i mean this is just like plague wind on a six six past turn Mm -hmm. six right yeah that seems powerful enough to me for sure i agree uh I am a little skeptical of like, okay, turn three, I'm going to pray counter your three creatures and like, oh man, you better watch out like three turns from now, I'm going to kill them all because that's kind of awkward. But yeah, certainly as a late game card, this card is incredible. Yeah, you're you're right that that's a, a bad spot to be in. I like it more as like my turn three is spent playing Gifted Aetherborn and putting a pray counter out. You know what I mean? Like just getting that maximization of your mana in the early turns that you really have to do as this kind of fair mid-rangey removal-based deck. You really don't have time in those early turns for mana inefficiency. And this just closes a lot of those gaps and functions really well into the late game. Yeah, definitely agree with you there. And like Chandra ramping into this is kind of cute. Oh yeah, that's a nice little effect, sure. Get to kill an extra thing. All right, so anything else on this? No, that that basically sums it up. Again, I, I do think I'm talking about a format that doesn't exist yet and may need some bans to come to fruition, but I, I mean, take that for what you will. It's still worth exploring. You know, these cards are going to exist in the future without energy at some point too, so it's certainly yeah. worth talking about for that eventuality. And like I said, I mean, if a ban happens, which I mostly expect it will, then cool, uh, we can actually talk about these cards and how they exist. And if a ban does not happen, then it's like, well, I, okay, maybe this set is like it just didn't happen, basically. Yeah, yeah, but we've done our homework for the future, which is an important thing to do. So yeah, for sure. Okay, so rolling into my number seven, this is this is my homie right here. Can you guess? <laughs> I'm going to guess Azor. It is. Yes, nailed it. How did you know? I, I could just tell. I could okay. just tell. All right. Azor the Lawbringer. Two, WWU, Legendary Creature Sphinx, 6-6 six, six Flyer. When this enters the battlefield, each opponent can't cast instants or sorcery spells during that player's next turn. Whenever Azor attacks, you may pay. Whenever Azor attacks, you may cast Sphinx's Revelation, basically. <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. So, as a control finisher, this card's okay, it's okay, and that's about it. I, I would not play this instead of Torrential Gear Hulk. I am not a big fan of, like, tap-out control decks in general. I think that there are enough cards that still deal with this reasonably that, like, the silence effect isn't like it actually protects him. I, I do think the card is sick in that it's just, like, in theory, if you play this and it, it has, like, this one turn of, like, Divine Shield or whatever where in theory, it can't die except of very specific things, and then you get to untap and go ham. 
I think that's really cool. Realistically, I don't think that that is necessarily going to be the case a lot of the time, but I am really looking forward to playing this card in mid-range creature decks, like as just a top-end card. Huh. Elaborate a little bit more on that, because this is not a card that makes my list. I have thought about it mostly in the context of a control finisher, but I want to hear what you have to say about mid-range creature decks and this card's inclusion. This is the one card I pre-ordered. Huh. Interesting. I don't I don't think it's going to be busted or anything, but it was like $8 and it's a mythic rare and I would likely pick them up at some point. So it's like, all right, well, better now than when they're 15 or 20 or whatever. So I don't know if they're actually going to go up or not, but I highly doubt this thing is going to be bulk. But again, I'm not rich. I'm no expert. Basically, there are some white decks that have some like mid-rangey cards and they also have Legion's Landing and Legion's Landing ramps pretty nicely into this thing. And if you can use Azor to protect yourself from things like Fumigate and the like, I think that's really good. I generally like having cards in my mid-range creature deck that kind of brick wall like the small-ish sweepers. Say you're playing like a white weenie humans deck and you board into like Avacyn or Gideon or whatever. Like obviously this card is harder to cast, but like we're also not as low to the ground as those decks were, you know? Yeah, I'm kind of intrigued by what you're selling right now because, uh, like I said, passed on this as a control finisher, especially in a world that has Torrential Gear Hulk. I guess my main problem is that I am unsure how good the protection clause of Azor is. I I really am having a difficult time evaluating it because, like you said, there are some widely played cards that just deal with this on its face. Like you trade this for a Harness Lightning on the spot and you feel horrible. And, you know, there, there's a couple windows. You get the window when it's immediately played and you get the window prior to its attack. Assuming, you know, you don't have other ways in the deck to protect itself, which you're kind of talking about now, a deck that probably, at least in pre-board games, won't have access to counter magic where it's kind of a, a white-blue beatdown deck, which is also a difficult deck to kind of see right now. I don't know exactly what that deck looks like. Well, think think about like Oketra's Monument too. Like that's another way to make this thing cheaper. And okay. If you are presenting threats, it is unlikely that they are going to have like a harness lightning to actually take care of this thing. Like this is this is just your top end, and there's also there's also stuff like Cloud Blazer, which kind of fits into like similar decks. So it's like yeah, like Blue White Monument might be a thing again. I don't know. It like depends on what they ban, and maybe somehow like the deck gets enough cards that it's like good against Teamer again, and could be a potential Teamer killer. I don't know. So I'm I just I'm walking through your Oketra's Monument scenario in your head. And you're playing this on five. And then presumably, you know, you've kind of played out your lands at that point. You're not guaranteed to have your six drop. So you get your attack with this huge mythic creature that you've invested in. And you time walk yourself to gain two life and draw two cards. Cloud Blazer. Don't you kind of just wish you played Cloud Blazer instead? Yeah, I'll play Cloud Blazer the turn before. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. You can build up to it. No, but like Like, it doesn't have to be Monument, right? It could also just be like Legion's Landing that has accelerated into this and then you untap and you have seven mana. You know, that looks a lot better for sure. There is redundancy to it. And especially with Oketra's Monument, like that just helps you kind of stabilize the ground a little bit and gives you a lot of breathing room. I don't know. I, I I feel like this card could have a place and like there are certainly like Bant decks where maybe this is good, right? Where it's like, Maybe you have some mana dorks or some acceleration, some removal spells, some card advantage. Then you just have like this as one of your fatties, like the Death Mist Raptor, Den Protector, Dragonlord Ojutai decks. Yeah, that's interesting. I can't go, I'm not 100% on board with you yet. The context you're presenting in is much more interesting than the one I was thinking about it in. This could also be a card that plays much better than it reads. It would not surprise me the first time I cast this, I'm just like, oh, 
This actually just closed out any hope my opponent had of winning this game. 6-6 six, um, six is so big. Yeah, flying on top of that. Let's not yeah. forget that very key clause. Yeah, man. It, this this thing is large. I'll, I'll shuffle up Azor at some point. I promise you that. They tap out for Glorybringer. You play this thing. They can't harness lightning it. They can't attack. You get to untap. I don't know. Seems good. like a good a good play pattern. Uh, you're coming out ahead in that transaction for sure. Yeah, so I mean, it, it matches up well against uh, some of the heavily played cards. Obviously, it is weak to some of the other cards too, but you know, that's what makes magic interesting. Yes, it is. I agree. And this is an interesting card. One that I'm going to reserve judgment on for the time being, but didn't make my top 10 in my first pass. All right, what's your seven? Uh, would you like to guess? It's also a legendary creature. Uh, Kumina. No, my seven is Alanda the Dusk Rose. Okay. This is another one that I kind of like that I thought other people were just going to hate. No, I think this card's good. And and I think it relies on you building vampires in a very different way. Your vampires deck has to be much more value-oriented. It's based around Yeheni. It's based around the 2-1 vampire that when it dies makes a 1-1. The Elvish Visionary vampire. All of these things come into play. And you kind of have this cannon fodder type vampires deck that can really grind out an opponent through life gain, through just redundancy. Maybe this deck is presenting wraths of its own. Maybe it plays things like uh, Bantu's Last Reckoning or maybe even Fumigate, it, it looks like. And it just tries to set up powerful Yehenis and Alandas where you wrath and then you're left with a you know, giant indestructible creature and six tokens on your side of the board. It's not hard for me to see a lot of really good scenarios if you build your deck around Alanda. Uh, it's unique. It's a new style of card. The lifelink is super important. Any ways to cheat on power, you know, we talked about the Glorious Anthem. The name's escaping me right now. But Radiant Destiny. Radiant Destiny, thank you. Anything that's pumping up power is extremely effective in Alanda. And you just see... All these value pieces coming together between Legion's Landing, between Yeheni, between Alanda, and there's a lot of fodder out there. You're able to go super wide, super long. Attacking on the ground against a deck like that is basically not going to happen ever. Again, when we're talking about problems, let's talk about how a deck like that lines up against things like Royal of Virtuoso and Glorybringer. It's an issue for sure. Uh, there'll be some vulnerability there. But I think this card is unique and powerful and one that I really want to explore in my Vampire's deck rather than just playing like Legion Lieutenant and I'm a crappy tribal deck um, that we've seen a million times before and really doesn't bring anything new to the equation. This is a unique card that you can build around and add a new angle to your game. Yeah, uh, so last week, Cedric Phillips messaged a bunch of Star City writers and was like, hey, you know, like these are some cool cards. Who wants to write about them? And I snapped off. Alenda or Alanda, whatever, and Hwatley. So it is It is very interesting for you to be like, oh, I like these cards. And it's like, it's pretty clear that you didn't read my article too, which is fine. So these cards just seem good on their face. I don't, I don't really feel like I'm taking a leap here. Like, yes, you have to build around them, but that's what interests me out of a new set. Like put in the effort, build around them. They don't slot into any existing archetypes, but they could potentially be the key to an entirely new archetype. Yeah, no, I agree. And like, I... I made a bunch of deck lists with both of these cards because they were appealing to me in that regard. And I thought like, you know, maybe I'm going out on a leap a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you with Alondo where 
it's weird in that, you know, like four mana one, one that grows when things die. It's just like, oh, that's exactly the type of thing that they just get to ignore, especially when she has a dice trigger. But like lifelink means that people can't ignore her. They can't just sit around and chump block her because you just like keep pressing your advantage basically. And yeah, if you have things like Yehenny, you can just crack her open whenever you want. Mm -hmm. So with Radiant Destiny into her, four mana two, two, dies make two, two, twos. That's fine. Insane. That's a great rate. And those those are all lifelink, by the way, every single yeah. one of them. So Yeah. And then, uh, well, you actually make two tutus with lifelink. Yeah. Yeah. Beat that on the ground. You're not beating it. It's just not that man. I was pretty excited about these cards. And uh, Huatli, I think a little bit more, like Alanda was more fun to build around, but Huatli is likely the better card, it seemed like to me. Maybe he goes in fewer spots. I don't know. But then they also presented a few other strong vampires, like you mentioned, just like the grindier vampires that are just good with Alanda. So like, yeah, I don't know. She didn't make my top 10. I wanted to be a little more, I don't know, out there, I guess. But there are some sweet vampires. Yeah, there's also, um, there, there's the one that you're able to play from your graveyard as well. I don't remember what the clause is on him, but oh, he's pretty oh, reasonable. vampire if you've gained life this turn. Yeah, I'd- that's that's possible, and and you can chain it through Yaheni and just get lots of tokens on your oh yeah your Amanda. So I'm kind of I'm kind of into this style of vampires. I don't I'm less excited about straight beatdown vampires. Although we'll probably get to that a little bit later in my list too. But I, I think Mono White looks okay. Okay, it, it may look okay. It's not a deck that excites me. Just kind of on its face, right? It's hard to get really into the white weenie deck. Whereas you start talking about grinding out games, recurring Oathsworn vampires from the graveyard. Now you're speaking my language. Like that's something I can get behind a hundred percent. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's like kind of a feel bad that like the vampires deck just looks weaker than the humans deck we had like two seasons ago. So right, I'm not super floored about it, but I do think that it looks playable. Like there are enough cards to do the Tom Ross thing if you want to do the Tom Ross thing. I agree. I, and they've gotten upgrades all across the curve. So I, I agree with you as far as that goes. Vampires, you know, when I was reading the questions posted in the game Discord this week, one of the ones that came up a bunch is like, what benefited the most from this set? It, in my eyes, it's vampires, clearly. They're, they're extremely strong tribal options for vampires throughout the set. I'm more sold on vampires than merfolk at this point. Just really interesting ways to build the vampire deck, too. I think there's a lot of options out there. I think Vampire's got a big boost. Uh, Pirate's power level was mostly in Ixalan, I think. But Merfolk got a bunch of stuff too, I think. Well, I think Merfolk moved to Viable, whereas Vampire's may have moved to Powerful. Just my quick take. No games behind it, obviously, and I could be proven wrong. Yeah, and Dinosaurs just went in a weird direction. Yeah, I don't I don't know what's going on with dinosaurs. I don't want to talk about them right now. I was so sure dinosaurs were going to be great and fun and uh, I just don't know how to build dinosaurs at this point. I mean, there's like Dino Rampant Growth, Dino Azusa Lost But Seeking and all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah, I I assume Wayward Swordtooth is supposed to pave the way for like the Naya giant monster thing and Galta and stuff like that, but I don't know. Dino's got made me really sad because they were so close to being there in the first set. Yeah, and then I don't think they really upgraded at all here. There are no dinosaurs on my list today. Spoiler. Oh, I guess there was Tet- Tetsamok, although I don't really count him as a dinosaur. <laughs> no, he is. He, he could be a demon and he'd be the yeah, same thing. Yeah, exactly right. All right. Uh, rolling into my number six. Ooh, this is another another pile. Are you ready? Ready. Daring Buccaneer slash Fanatical Firebrand. So Daring Buccaneer is the 
two two reveal a pirate for one red correct yeah r two two as an additional ca- cost to cast this reveal a pirate or pay two uh so this is just a kithkin yep last it was the last card cut for my top ten uh just because it's kind of boring but I agree this is a very important print and the other one is r uh one one haste goblin pirate tap sack it deal one to target creature or player hmm so yeah man these are boring but uh, we played Builds Messenger, Messenger, however that card's pronounced, at uh, the Pro Tour, and we liked it, man. We liked it in our mono red deck. So Mog Fanatic Raging Goblin is not that bad. And then you start looking at like, okay, I got these Mog Fanatic Raging Goblins. Uh, I got some Carry Zevs. Is it possible for me to put Isamaru, Kithkin Pirate Guy, in my mono red deck? And I, I got to go searching for, for red pirates now. Yeah, I think the Pirate Tribe, like you said, got a nice upgrade here. The one-drop Pirate is the key both to unlocking kind of like the other Pirate archetypes, I think, like Red-Black Pirates, Red-Blue Pirates. And I do think that likely the best Pirate builds involve Red at this point, mostly because of these cards you're mentioning. And like you said, there is a window that could possibly present the Mono Red Pirates deck. You get uh, Captain Lannery Storm if you're a believer in that card. I don't know if I am, but, you know, another Pirate moving up the curve a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I basically want to see if I can get these good one-drops into Ramanap Red. And, like, obviously, Fanatical Firebrand could just go in if you wanted an additional Raging Goblin thing. What do you think the threshold is for your Daring Buccaneers? Like, how many pirates do you realistically have to have in your deck? I don't know. I have to figure that out. Uh, there's also Dire Fleet Daredevil, which strikes me as quite a good card. I didn't know where to put it on my list. This is the 1R21 First Strike ETB. You can Snapcaster a thing out of their graveyard. Yeah, I don't know. This is also did not make my list. It's certainly a pirate. I think that I think that I avoided putting this card on my top ten because it's worse than it reads, and people were a little bit too excited about it. But it still may prove to be very good despite that fact. Um, it could be a totally reasonable card. It's just not as busted as maybe people think it is. The context I first considered this card in was actually vintage. I think cards like this are very interesting in vintage. Whenever you get to basically get access to a graveyard, uh, it can be really strong because you kind of win through incidental creature damage a lot of times in vintage. Yeah. I don't know if this card is quite there given the state of, you know, dredge and workshops being omnipresent. And that's your hot vintage take for this episode of the game podcast. Bet you didn't think that you were getting that when you tuned in. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So Dire Fleet Daredevil, close in vintage, probably not though. I just look at this card as like, all right, if we're going to play a mono red mirror or mono red against teamer and everyone's going to have like these Chandra's defeats and other removal spells, it's like, this is not that bad. Like it's a reasonable way to grind. Yeah. Certainly built in card advantage. I don't know. It's tough for me to kind of say it's definitely good enough because it depends a lot on the context of the answers people are bringing in. You're exactly right. Where if it's still a default, you know, three to four Chandra's defeat metagame, this card looks amazing in the mirror. But, you know, where this has to kind of wait till four mana until it's doing a two for one, it certainly pales in comparison to a lot of the other options at four mana. You know, now we have Phoenix and uh, Hazaret hasn't gone anywhere. So it's certainly nice to have the flexibility built into your deck and have the multiple play states, but a little lower on Dire Fleet Daredevil than the rest of the pirate crew here. But I could certainly see it seeing some play. Dire Fleet is way worse than Abbot of Carol Keep, but I do think the play patterns are going to be similar where it's like, oh, I kind of want to hold this until turn four, but you played on turn two and it's also just perfectly reasonable. Like two, one first yeah. strike is fine. 
you know? Yeah. In a lot of matchups, that'll be completely reasonable. Uh, you know, the, the mirror is one that comes to mind where being able to blunt those kind of early turns makes a, a huge difference and lets you get to a late game that you can possibly win if your hand is textured in such a way. Um, so having that kind of split card built into your deck is a really nice bonus. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, well, we are entering into our top fives and we're at 50 minutes. So, Oh geez. Does that mean, what, what do we do? Do we go really fast now? I well faster. I don't know. Faster. Okay. So I'll shut up and say I think Kamena Tyrant of Orizaka is a fine card. Uh one that may make Merfolk playable. Uh it has some abilities. Go read it if you're interested in them, and that's all I have to say. Merfolk Cryptbreaker. Yeah. Dude, I'm gonna win another Pro Tour with Cryptbreaker. I'm so excited. <laughs> is it gonna be this modern one? Am I gonna play? No, I'm not gonna play Merfolk. I'm going to talk you out of that. You know, I think this is a, a much worse version of Crypt Breaker, but still there's a lot of room to be worse than Crypt Breaker. And Dude, Crypt Breaker tricked you sometimes into playing it on turn one when you weren't supposed to. So this takes away all the mystery and that's that's your basis. For now now you go one drop, two drop into Kumina and that's game. Uh, in a lot of spots it will be. I mean, you can certainly run away with a lot of games like that. I'm not sold on the Merfolk tribe yet. I need to see some really strong Merfolk lists. I need to see some strong Merfolk results. I guess it's kind of a deck that I honestly don't know how to build right now. So They need a way to kill stuff, and they just don't have that right now. Like, what are you supposed to do to affect the board? Like, your deck is supposed to be 36 Merfolk, and you just can't beat a card? Like, Yeah, that's crazy to me. That's not how I would build a deck. Also, we skipped my number six, I just realized. So we have to circle back around to that. All right, what's your six? <laughs> This is the one like I was super excited about and and think is one that people are not into at all. It's Profane Procession. Oh yeah, this card um, sucks. I disagree <laughs> very strongly. I think this card is again reliant on a deck that does not exist right now uh, and reliant. That's fine. On, Those are the best cards to talk about. Yeah, and I think it's relying on a metagame that also doesn't exist because you play this against Mono Red and you feel like an idiot. But I was thinking back to like the the white black control decks of. I don't remember exactly what sets were legal. Whatever GP, the last GP Costa Rica that I played in, then White Black was a very prominent deck in that format. This is potentially a six for one after a tremendous amount of mana investment. Don't get me wrong, but still a deck that's built around just being pure removal. You know, it's like quick sketch, four fatal push, four settle the wreckage, four fumigate, some number of this card. You see a lot of setups where if your first two turns go well and you lay a profane procession on the board and you're ready with your settle on turn four, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of decks to get back into the game and you can just close out a game right there. I understand it's expensive. I understand that it's slow. I understand that it has no immediate impact on the board. I just think this is a very unique tool for decks that are kind of built around playing um, this one-for-one -one removal game and need this kind of value engine to transition into the late game while also being able to preserve their life total and deal with threats. So this is unique. This is a, a unique card that is very difficult to evaluate and I'm kind of sold on it. I, I think there's a potential home for it. It looks unlike anything that's currently in the metagame and it may not line up well against what's currently being played. You know, there's very efficient threats for less than five mana, but think about exiling your opponent's scarab gods and, you know, exiling hazards. Exiling is very important still in this format. Uh, and Profane Procession does that. So this bumps it up a few notches in my book. And I want to explore some builds based around this card. The rate on this card is so horrendous. If it ETB'd and gained three life or like you gained three life on activation or, you know, just did anything really, I would be more about it. Uh, I do think that this card is probably worse than any Planeswalker ever. 
Hmm. That's an interesting way of evaluating it. I don't know. I think you need to build your entire deck with this card in mind, but it's potentially going to pay you off if you do so. It's also just like super dead. Well, not super dead. I guess like blue black control probably could never beat this. But they could never beat it. No, I, I think you're completely wrong. I think this is like an insane card against blue black control. You play not this on turn approach, three. And approach. It's dead against approach for yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. And you know, you're not, you're probably never beating approach as the black white control deck either. There's really no way to make that matchup sing, but this card caught my eye. I get all the concerns that you're saying. I still think I want to explore it a little bit. And if it's something I have to cast aside to just being like a relic of, you know, outdated magic, something that would have shined 15 years ago and can't possibly shine today, that's fine. But I will at least give it its its due diligence and see if there's something there. So the garbage do nothing card that I want to build around in this set is Azor's Gateway. Yeah, I think this is like way worse. <laughs> it's funny. This is the one that I wrote off and you wrote off the profane pr- procession. Like it's never, ever, ever going to flip in a million years. And then you still have to have payoff for it. This one is cheap and it loots. That's not bad. Five five or more uh, different converted mana costs. Zero is a mana cost. So you can loot away a land once. That's not bad. I think that clause is going to be much harder to meet than people believe. It's bad. It's bad. I'm just saying, if I wanted to do nothing, accomplish nothing. (laughs) This is the way you want to do it? This is the way I would want to do it. All right. That's fair. Okay. So my number five is Relentless Raptor, R-Dub, 3-3, Vigilance, Dinosaur, attacks or blocks each combat if able. I don't know. Maybe that ability is just too bad, but this thing like Cruise Vehicles is more veteran motorists for vehicles. So I think it's kind of sweet. Huh. This never even came close to making my list, but... I guess it's just kind of like a little boring and that's why, you know, not an exciting card, but it's certainly good on rate. It's boring, but it's like under the radar, you know, that that's why it's on here. No, you're right. As far as an important piece of kind of the heart of Kieran puzzle, which is a, a game we're not even playing anymore. Uh, maybe this reignites an archetype like that. That's able to efficiently crew hard and makes its bread and butter that way. Hell yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I passed on this card, but it, it's hard to pass on a two mana three, three with vigilance, right? Yeah. All right, uh, my number four is Jade Light Ranger. Okay, that's my number one. That's my number one card in the set. Okay, one GG, two one, Merfolk Scout. When this ETBs, it explores, then explores again. This is just Civic Wayfinder, man. At its worst. Yeah, this is just one GG, three two that gets a land the the majority of the time. Maybe it draws you two land. Cool. Maybe it's a four three. Well, that's not great, but like you got to scry twice, you know? Like, yeah, this card's dope. I think it's great. I, th- I think it's the safest card in the set, which is why it's my number one. I think it plays across a ton of archetypes. Um, I love it with, you know, a, a kind of green-black deck, getting your extra counters from your winding constrictors is always fun. Oh, yeah. Like, you it, you could cut Rogue Refiner from Sultai. Right. right and, exactly. You know, if Rogue Refiner gets banned, like, you're going to have to. So, mm-hmm. cool. The Merfolk clause on this is just a, a red herring. Uh, yeah, exactly right. That's that's why I eventually place this as my number one card. It's not about being a merfolk. It's it's not a merfolk card. It's a green card. It has tremendous value installed in it right off the bat. I've happily played Civic Wayfinder and constructed before. It's the fine a fine card in the right situations. This is going to be even better in a lot of situations. I just think this is a great card. 
it's kind of like the tireless tracker rogue refiner of the format going forward, especially if energy gets the ax. It's, it's too good on rate not to see widespread play in a vast, vast swath of archetypes. Probably any green deck is playing this card. So yeah, my number one card in the set. Spoiler alert. We already got to the end. Yeah. What, what are we doing? Are we beating them down with this? Are we, are we playing a control game? Who cares? It's good. It doesn't matter. It's, it's in yeah. your deck. Yep. Uh, okay. So that was, that was my number four. Where, what are you at? Uh, my number four is, th- this is kind of a weird one because it is not going to see any standard play, at least not for the foreseeable future, but it's the only card that reaches to eternal format. So I went with it. It's Blood Sun. I think Blood Sun is kind of like, if I was preparing for this Pro Tour, it's the card I want to understand in the modern context. I don't know that it changes anything, but it's the card that demands exploration and seeing how it kind of affects some outstanding matchups. This offers decks that are have zero interest in Blood Moon, a way to shore up some very real weaknesses. Something like Tron now has answers to Field of Ruin, to, you know, the Valakut decks. It really is a very unique card that hits a tremendous, tremendous amount of cards. It's shutting down Celestial Colonnades. Um, You don't have to look far in the modern format to see tons of cards um, impacted by Blood Sun. And it's a cantrip. Like, Tron is very much a deck that can afford not to play every card in its hand, but when it gets to the late game, it needs to be able to cycle through cards efficiently. Blood Sun plays into that strategy. I want to know what it does in Tron. I want to know if it has any other potential homes. I don't know that I believe it's the fourth best card in the set per se, but it's the only one that I think is going to have any kind of real significant reach into the Eternal formats. And with the Pro Tour coming up, I would be remiss to not mention it. That's why it made my number four spot. Uh, Green, blue, Merfolk Lord, I think is the other modern card. Uh, possibly yes good point maybe jade light ranger because it's faster than tracker and i don't know but yeah blood blood sun is badass man it's very unique and, and a very new approach to this kind of this kind of card and like i said it's offering a whole new group of decks ways to deal with problematic lands so all lands lose all abilities except mana abilities how does this interact with Carus? uh they come into play untapped and tap for two mana good god yeah that's actually cool yeah, it's an interesting effect. It does a lot. It, the more you think about it, the more you're like, huh, huh. Yeah, and um, just on top of it, all the cantrips. Cantrips. Whatever. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a card that you have to understand going into this Pro Tour. I don't, I'm not saying it changes the Pro Tour, but you have to do your diligence and understand what this absolutely reshapes. Oh, yeah, I'm not there yet, so. You got time. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so. Uh, my number three was Merfolk Package of Silver Gill Adept, Kumina, and Merfolk Mistbinder, which is the Lord. Those cards are all cool. I don't know if they make a deck because I don't know how this deck deals with anything. Yeah, Silver Gill Adept is my number two card. Just an incredibly proven card, unquestionably there on rate. If Merfolk is good, it's on the back of cards like Silver Gill Adept. You know, there's not really a lot to say about it. I still see the same fundamental problems. Merfolk can't just be 36 creatures. There has to be some other strategy there. Uh, a card I'll mention, which didn't make my top 10, but I think is interesting, is the blue-green transform land, Hadana's Climb. That might be a key piece of the Merfolk decks. Uh, I don't know if I really see that, though. I think that deck, that card might have some other better homes. Could very much be playable, but... I just don't know how to build the, the green blue Merfolk deck. I'm waiting for someone to show me the way. If it's good, it's because Silver Gill Adept exists, basically. Uh yeah. Silver Gill Adept and Kumina, I think. Sure. Kumina is another piece of the puzzle. So did you get through your entire list or are you missing nope. number three? Missing number three. All right, go ahead with your number three and then I'll close out with my top two. Okay. My number three card. I'm not sure about this at all. Uh, <laughs> but 
I'm going to play a lot with it. It's Paladin of Atonement. I would have put it, you know, in the vampire package had I packaged things. But the more I think about this card, I think it's like secretly a Tarmogoyf. Like this card is going to get huge very quickly for very low mana investment. You have to build your deck around it, but Vampires very much wants to build around this kind of effect. No, man. Um, Sheffit Dunes. Game over. Sheffit Dunes. No, ex- you're exactly right. That's step one. Sheffit Dunes is a card that Vampires definitely wants. And, you know, if, if it's Black-White Vampires and Paladin of Atonement is a good, as good as I think it is, maybe you play eight deserts. Maybe it's uh, four Black Deserts, four White Deserts. I yeah. don't know. But I, I think you're going to be surprised at how efficient and how effective this card is. Granted, it's kind of just like keyword big. It doesn't do much beyond that, but at two mana, <laughs> keyword big is good enough. Like if, if you're getting paid on your two mana, that's that's great. And as we talk about things like the sacrifice engines, you're guaranteeing access to that life gain, which is very important in the late game. You know where they may just try and skirt your ability to get your paladin into the graveyard. You can leave them with no choice if you have access to Yeheni, which I think is going to be a key piece of Vampire's decks going forward. I really like Paladin of Atonement. I, I think it's a, a key card in Vampire's. Word. Uh, I definitely agree with you. That kind of fits in my package too. Like I listed two cards that I thought were great in Vampires, but like Alanda and Vampire of Atonement, Vampire Elvish Visionary, Vampire Savannah Lions. Uh, yeah, that card's good. Like the, the Vampire Grizzly Bear that comes back if you gain life. Like they have a ton of cards and a ton of different ways to build things. And yeah, you're probably right that they got the most. So do you think it is absolutely crazy that uh, my top two cards are just not even on your top 10? Yes, I was just going to say, what could they possibly be? I think I know what one of them is, but yeah, I'm not sure what the second one is. I'm I'm curious what you're going to say here. Well, it is aptly named. It is Baffling End. Um, I better figure out what card that is right now. Which What is Baffling End? Uh, it is Silk Wrap, effectively, and when this leaves the battlefield, target opponent makes it. Okay. Okay, this card is good. I, I am I am banking on this thing not dying, obviously. Uh, yes. If, if it is just Silk Wrap, I think that is awesome. We are definitely light on two-mana removal, and white especially is very, very light on like cheap, good interaction. So I think this is a huge pickup for uh, both vampires and various blue-white control decks and such. Um, yeah, this is a very good removal spell. Kind of one of the few just like bread and butter cards in the set. Um, not a lot of like really good costed removal. Um, it's just kind of like big splashy effect after other big splashy effect. But this is just kind of a, a bread and butter card. Again, I, I guess like I kind of downplayed its significance because of that. But you're right. This is an important piece going forward and will definitely be uh, a game changer in the metagame. All right. So what's my number one? Ravenous Chupacabra. That's the one. That is it. That is it. I disagree. Really? It's interesting, yeah. And I have seen Patrick Sullivan's take, which kind of informed a lot of the discussion around Chupacabra. I think it's a totally fine, very good card. I just don't know what you're getting out of the 2-2. But here's your chance. Convince me Ravenous Chupacabra is the best card in the set. This card is stupid. It is stupid. I agree that it's stupid. Dude, it, like, okay, so Hostage Taker has very, very high upside, to the point where, and, and like the downside is pretty bad too, especially in a world like Rogue Refiners and stuff, to the point where like you need to play Blossoming Defense to make it playable, right? Like Hostage Shaker is not showing up in, in decks outside of like maybe blue-black mid-range, although I think that I would hesitate to actually call that a deck, you know? Chupacabra just killing like a Long Tusk Cub, just killing anything, man. Like they play Scarab God, kill it. Okay, like 
you know, they, they torrential gear hook, you kill it. Like this is, this is murder. You pay one more mana, you get a two, two, the two, two body is relevant, especially if you're doing anything with random bodies, like there's Verderous gear hulk. And if uh rogue refiner leaves, then uh, I think the black green decks might return to Verderous gear hulk. So having this body is another great pickup and the scarab God, man. Great with scarab God. I have literally no response to that uh everything is great with scarab god so that's kind of an easy bridge to cross i guess i'm not a believer in the the 2-2 body and if you kind of we don't have murder though we have raska's contempt this is true and like 2-2 body attacks random planeswalkers and gets like gear hold counters and whatnot like i don't know man i this this card seems really dumb i feel like if you are playing a deck that is trying to attack your opponent with creatures, and you're probably going to play some amount of this card, right? But post-board, if you're playing against another deck that is trying to attack you with creatures, you're going to have four of this card. This is probably going to be a very, very widely utilized sideboard card. I could see that. Okay, here's the argument I want to make. If you haven't seen what Patrick Sullivan had to say about this card, you should really go see it. I'm sure it's available on StarCity.com. It was in the uh, tournament coverage archive. Um, they they posted like the eight minute clip on YouTube. So yeah. And it's worth watching because I think his take is, is kind of spot on the point where I disagree is kind of how ubiquitous this card is going to be and, and how actually good it is. Because once you kind of get to the point where you realize everything has to have a comes into play ability or, you know, has to kind of protect itself, which is kind of the crux of his argument or, you know, does things like the Scarab God where it just completely takes over the game then I don't think just stapling a 2-2 body onto a removal spell is actually good enough anymore at sorcery speed. Like it doesn't answer a lot of very problematic cards permanently. I get that it's just like a little bit of bonus, a little bit of upside. You're, you're stapling on the 2-2 body to your removal spell, which you're kind of priced into playing anyway, and you get all these other upsides. A totally fine card, but it doesn't seem to me to dramatically shift the axis of the format when we've already adapted magic to play around these new rules that we have to get value. So like you play Ravenous Chupacabra and you kill a uh, Whirler Virtuoso. Do you really feel that great about it? Like it's fine. Sure. And you're, you're coming out ahead on mana kind of like, I'd argue that that transaction is probably fairly close. Yeah. You're paying one mana for a two, two for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that it blocks Rogue Refiner is nice. That body is certainly relevant in that spot. But if you're just like killing a Rogue Refiner, you didn't really come out ahead on that transaction. I don't know, man. Like, it just doesn't seem to be impactful enough. And that being said, I do think like blue-black control, Ravenous, Chupacabra, Scarab God is a very real thing that decks will have a difficult time dealing with, for sure. It'll beat up on a lot of decks. But as far as just like kind of changing the entire metagame and, and... and being what we kind of build around going forward. I don't know if I quite see it because I think we're already building around negating removal and being able to just basically get value from our creatures before losing them to Chupacabra really becomes a problem. Sort of, but we don't have access to good removal though. Like if you're black green, you were playing fatal push. And then what's your next best card? Like you play Vraska's contempt and like walking ballista and stuff. Most black green decks are going to want this instead of Vraska's contempt. And that's, that's, that's a huge pickup for them. Also against mono red, like maybe you want some Vraska's contempts to kill Hazret and stuff, but like Chupacabra being a four mana thing that like can kill a thing and block a thing is also huge instead of just mm-hmm. like playing a Vraska's contempt on their like crasher or whatever. The random 2-2 does matter. I mean, it attacks Planeswalkers. It helps you win races. There are things that you can do with just like having the creature in the graveyard, like Scarab God or Liliana. Like, 
I don't know. Like you're, you're undervaluing a two, two. It's just like, Oh man, like why am I playing rogue refiner for like a, a three, two body and energy and like a cycle or whatever? Like, what does the three, two do? It's like, it kills your opponent. You, you play a couple of them and they do work. No, you, you make a good point. I guess I'm expecting more from my four mana card, but you're right. That removal is kind of historically bad. I don't know. It's just like, if this card was Necrotal, and I get the difference between Necrotal because it has a fail state in that point. Like there's a bunch of creatures you can't kill. If it's Necrotal, it probably sees zero play, like actual zero. So is the upgrade going to destroying any creature? That's enough to really make this the best card in this entire set? I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. And granted, I think this card will see play. The mono red example is a really nice one. I think it will be game breaking in a lot of instances against mono red. I didn't evaluate exactly how strong it would be in that spot. I don't think that this is what standard magic is going to revolve around for the next however many months. For the next two years, I don't think it'll be all about Ravenous Chupacabra. I think it'll be, you know, spot inclusion here or there in a bunch of decks. Um, It'll see sideboard play where it lines up really well. But I, I just don't think it's a format definer, which kind of your number one card, you should ask it to be a format definer. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I do basically think it is format defining. And I don't know, like... If I had a good murder, like I would consider playing a good murder, but I don't have that, you know, like certainly four mana two, two, like flame tongue Kavu or whatever. Like, it's not like, oh my God, I can't believe they made this or whatever. But I do think it's weird to push this sort of thing and have it have no downside in a format where they're trying to push like tribal synergy stuff. Like, I, mm-hmm. I definitely agree with Peace Sully in that regard. It's just like this card is going to see play kind of because of that. And you know, like what what the hell are these like Merfolk decks gonna do? It's like they're they're a bunch of like random things and then they have like a specific lord, right? Yeah. I you can't I just can't sell myself on the Merfolk decks right now. You're exactly right. I don't know what they're supposed to do against a card like Ravenous Chupacabra, where they just like are picking off the key piece and then it trades with another one of your Merfolk very efficiently when there's no lords in play. So. Yeah, like vampires can grind and for the most part you're shrugging off spot removal, so I get that. Right. right. But I don't know, man, like maybe maybe we're just at a point where like green decks without uh like rogue refiner and the like i mean you have jade light ranger but like without a lot of the efficacy of things like rogue refiner these decks are going to have to become more like vampires or just be like okatra's monument and not care about removal and that that is entirely possible that that's a world we're going to live in and this card is just going to stink assuming the format were just like basically the same with like now maybe there are some tribal decks i like this card yeah, I, I see what I do see what you're saying, and it's hard to make an argument against this card, right? Like its rate is just very good. It has it has no fail state except for completely creatureless decks. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm just going to have to be shown to be wrong in this case. I, I think it's kind of like a relic of an older age of magic. We don't build decks that are vulnerable to ravenous chupacabra anymore. The problem with it, and I think this was Peace Ali's point, is you're exactly right that the type of decks that this set seems to encourage, something like Merfolk, is very vulnerable to Chupacabra. And now you point out Mono Red is very vulnerable to Chupacabra. I need to have more games under my belt to really put a full evaluation forth on Chupacabra. It's not in my top 10 right now, though. I think it's a, a card that sees some spot play and people are a little bit too hyped on it right now. Legit. Uh, I, I do think that this card is going to be phenomenal with Scarab God also. For whatever that's worth. So yeah, no objection here, but it's hard to find cards that are bad with Scarab God, in fairness. No, I know, but the trick with Scarab God is like you don't win every single game you untap with it. And, and you think you think now you do, essentially. I, I don't think you win every single game, but I do think that this helps cover you against a lot more different scenarios. You know, like 
there are definitely games where you just have like only long tusk cubs to bring back or whatever and they're like beating you down with a flyer or something and yeah this this just like insulates you from a lot of bad stuff happening very true. I like it in the context of like the the straight black green deck. Again, if there's an energy ban and we move away from Rogue Refiner and you're talking like the classic kind of black green into Verderous Gear Hulk, that style certainly benefits from Ravenous Chupacabra, without a doubt. Hell yeah. Jade Light Ranger in that card. Just mana screwed every game. Yeah, with our with our one dual end and yeah. our comes into play tap that we have to rely on. Yeah, uh, I really thought there was going to be some mana here. I'm very surprised there wasn't. Yeah, Foul Orchard, get in there. Guess it's time. I guess that's what it's come to. Oh, maybe some Ripjaw Raptors too, man. Let's do this. Sure. We we totally missed on that one. All right. What's our question seeing as how we're a million minutes over? All right. Super Softball. What's your favorite game for speed running, either to watch or play? Mm. The Zelda games have been really fun for me. Have you been watching Awesome Games Done Quick? I watched it like earlier this year i think or was it late last year i don't know okay it's on again now okay um, you know shout outs to any you know charitable endeavor so we can definitely throw some business their way I, yeah. I i come and go with awesome games done quick just because there's i'm not really into like the fps runs i'm really into more classic stuff but i'm a i'm a Mega Man guy through and through I'm not oh, a huge yeah. fan of the x games i really like the nintendo ones much better like three four five six i played to death when i was a kid so i love those speed runs and i've considered picking it up myself i haven't yet maybe someday i'll i'll learn uh at least one Mega Man speed run so my my favorite games are like the old school rpgs and then you know i dabbled in the the things that were like popular and good like Mega Man, zelda castlevania whatever and yep. I thought that I would enjoy watching speed runs of like Final Fantasy games and stuff, but I just don't because it's like so much of the speed is constrained by like walls of text and just like nothing happening. Like the the Mega Man speed runs and like Zelda speed runs and stuff like that. It's just like they're, they're just demonstrating like pure mastery. Mastery. That's the right word for it. And, and it's, it's nonstop action. Right. There is a mastery that goes along with the RPG speed runs, but it's more like I'm amazed at their memory. And the things they retain. Yeah, I figured out the optimal way to do all this stuff and commit it to memory. Like the, the Final Fantasy One stuff is like, oh, now I go outside this town and take X steps, and like that's going to be yeah. this encounter, and blah blah blah. And it's just like that's not interesting to me, you know? Yeah the the actual challenge was in the planning, and like the exec the execution is kind of lost. Whereas I think the two D side scrollers are very much like execution heavy and just absolutely nailing all these frame perfect inputs and all. All that stuff. So I'm definitely a hardcore Mega Man guy, but really any classic NES game kind of, that's where my interest is peaked. All right, Beekeeper. Do you have any like that's game pun for bees? No, I have absolutely nothing. Yeah, I, I was, know you put me on the spot for that. I, I, I was, you know, if I came up with one, I, I thought it was going to be great, but I just like biffed it. And then I was like, eh, well, maybe Brian knows one. I don't know. No, I'm just I'm like not a pun guy. I really set myself up for failure with this one. <laughs> like that's not my forte. Um, I just wanted to do it this one time, and now I've let people down at the end of the show. Nah, you brought you brought all the honey, baby. Don't worry. Okay, as long as they're enjoying my honey, that's all that matters. That's game. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha